Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. William Mott was working in one of several offices on the 15th floor of 264 West 40th Street in New York City when a man walked in looking for help. Are you Nick? The stranger asked. Mott said no. Nick's in his office down the hall. The man appeared to be delivering some inner office mail based on the familiar envelope he had in his hand, and it seemed to be a casual visit based on the fast food soda cup he had in his other hand. Mott, who had known Nick DeNoia for 24 years, didn't think twice about directing him to his longtime friend's office door. Oddly, though, the visitor didn't head straight to the office in question, but rather walked back toward the bathroom at the end of the hall. It seemed a slightly strange encounter, but not bizarre enough to warrant any huge red flags. A few minutes passed and Mott headed back to the restroom, which was vacated by then. The only indicator that there had been a visitor was the soda cup left behind on the bathroom sink. Then Mott heard a popping sound. Next came the sound of the door to the stairwell opening and closing shut. Curious, Mott made his way down the hall and peeked in Nick DeNoia's office. The famed choreographer was slumped in his chair, blood trickling from a wound in his forehead. Oh, my God. He's been shot right through the head. What's the name of your place? This is Chippendale. Mott rushed to his side. He told a stunned-looking Nick that he'd be all right. Help would soon arrive. While he pulled Nick onto the floor in hopes of stanching the bleeding but it was soon obvious that there was nothing he could do to save Nick. The 45-year-old choreographer, a man nicknamed in the media Mr. Chippendales, was dead, killed by a single gunshot wound on April 7, 1987. It would take years and a trip to Europe for detectives to unravel the case, but once they did, it would uncover a murderous conspiracy and criminal enterprise that would shock the nation and topple what should have been an inspiring story of a man attaining the American dream. This episode is the second and final one inspired by the recent Hulu series Welcome to Chippendales. The series, which is based on a dry but detailed book called Deadly Dance, The Chippendales Murders, got a good bit right about this part of the tale, more than its episode one depiction of Dorothy Stratton's killing, but as is always the case with based on real life stories, it deviated enough from reality that it's worth the deeper look. So here we go. Nicholas DeNoia Jr. was an incredibly talented man born in 1941 in New Jersey as one of four boys born to parents Helen and Nicholas Sr. 
by high school, his future already seemed clear. I found yearbooks touting his theater prowess, including one listing him among the winners of a talent contest in which he and some classmates performed a number from Damn Yankees. He was president of Leona High School's Book and Mask Theater Club, too. Lots of people don't find their callings in life until well into adulthood. That just wasn't the case with Nick. In his 20s, Genoia began teaching at the Charles E. Hughes High School for the Humanities, which was then in a tough area of Manhattan. He produced student plays that earned glowing reviews in the New York Times, which is crazy because the New York Times just didn't review high school plays on the regular. Denoya earned a reputation as a perfectionist who demanded the same from his students, but they loved him and typically delivered. Some of the kids kept in touch with him for years after they graduated. Denoya moved into acting after teaching. According to Dudley Dance, Nick as a young man bore a passing resemblance to the actor-comedian Steve Martin. I admit, I don't see it, but that's okay which helped him land some bit acting parts, sometimes under the stage name Nick Dennis. His acting career culminated in a lead role in the 1971 movie Some of My Best Friends Are, starring Fanny Flagg, Rue McClanahan, and Candy Darling. The movie was about a group of gay friends who would meet in a New York bar to discuss the pros and cons of gay life. You are the cruelest sister a girl ever had. Just coming over here to find out how you were. I slipped in that ugly slush outside. It fell flat on my ass. Maybe there goes your next month's rent. Hey, what did I tell you? It's the boss. You better unload this brandy. He's right. Thanks, Sam. You're a jewel. At that point, Nick was on his way to marrying Jennifer O'Neill, a beautiful model and actress who starred in Summer of 42. Nick and Jennifer met while they were both represented by the William Morris Agency. The marriage was short, lasting less than a year in 1975, but they stayed friends after the divorce. While Denoya was often with gorgeous women at public events, in private, he preferred the company of men. After some of my best friends are, Denoya produced plays, including Echoes of the Left Bank, a musical for the famous Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. in 1971 and 72. In the mid-1970s, he started Unicorn Tales, a company that produced family-oriented musical and fantasy television shows for children. Fairy tales are marvelous, wonderful stories that were supposed to have happened a long time ago. Do you think... Fairy tales still happen today? Well, they do here on Unicorn Tales. Some of the shows Denoria produced and directed included The Magic Hat, The Maltese Unicorn, Big Apple Birthday, and Alex and the Wonderful Doo-Wah Lamp. Besides producing and directing, Denoria wrote an ugly duckling into a swan children's movie, The Magic Pony Ride, and an Italian immigrant meets Pinocchio movie, The Stowaway. His TV productions won five Emmys for children's programming. For some reason, Welcome to Chippendales repeatedly mentions that the Denoya it depicts won two Emmys, but the real figure is five. Five. And that's not even half of what he did. This guy must have never slept. He produced shows for a troupe called Broadway Tonight, which performed on stages across the country and on cruise ships across the world. After his Emmy success, Denoya wanted to try his luck in Hollywood. 
He moved to Los Angeles and landed a position at Hanna-Barbera Productions, an animation company of the Flintstones, Johnny Quest, and Scooby-Doo fame. Fairly quickly, the driven and demanding Denoya realized he did not like working for someone else, so he went out on his own again. He was soon approached by one of Steve Banerjee's representatives about a job at Chippendales, a male strip club where the performances were bare bones and pretty crass. Nick was not impressed. According to Deadly Dance, he caught one of the shows and walked out saying, you've got to be kidding me. This tawdry, lowbrow production was the brainchild of Paul Snyder, who was actually the one who had suggested a male strip club to Chippendale's owner, Steve Banerjee. Snyder had started out as the show's MC, and while the show was gaining popularity, it was in spite of, not because of, his crass intros. Banerjee wanted Nick to bring some class and pizzazz to the place, so he circled back to him again with an offer of real money as in $1,000 a week, which translates to about $3,600 today, or an annual salary equivalent to about $187,000. Nick considered the offer, but he wanted creative control of the shows, which he wanted to be on par with Broadway productions. Steve agreed, prompting Nick to begin a stormy relationship with a man who was far more sinister than he initially seemed. Steve Banerjee wasn't born a Steve. That simply wasn't a name commonly assigned to children born in India. His real name was Shoman, spelled S-O-M-E-N, Banerjee, and he had been born into the fourth generation of a family of printers on October 8, 1946, in what was then Bombay. He immigrated from the West Indian port city to Canada and then to the United States in 1969, ending up in Los Angeles. Like many immigrants to the U.S., he adopted a westernized name, Steve. Life was just a tad easier that way. Unlike Nick, Steve wasn't as clear about his future path early in life. When he first came to the country, he set his sights on owning a gas station. He did that for a time, but wanted more. And he dressed for the part. He wore large glasses, which for some reason was the style at the time, as well as colorful button-down Oxford shirts with silk ties and dress slacks. He seemed out of place at the gas station, not only because he was dressed too formally for the gig, but also because he made it clear with his attitude that he considered the work beneath him. From Deadly Dance, quote, He was brusque with customers, showing his resentment when they even just asked for the restroom key. He read business journals and studied the work of his favorite designers and filmmakers, Giorgio Armani, Calvin Klein, and Steven Spielberg, all the while dreaming of making it big in America, end quote. Steve decided to trade in gas station life for something more posh. He and business partner Bruce Nahan bought a building with the plan of turning the place into a classy backgammon club, which apparently was a thing back in the 70s. He named the club Destiny 2. The Hulu series suggests the name was a devious attempt to exude an aura of success. If this is Destiny 2, Banerjee says in the show, people will assume that it's a second location for an already popular establishment. Deadly Dance's authors say it was for perhaps a more optimistic reason. It was a second attempt for Banerjee to become the success he knew he was meant to be. Destiny 2, get it?
But the club didn't take off as he had hoped. From a grunge video called The Dark Truth Behind Chippendales. The club failed to become profitable. Nahan and Banerjee tried several desperate gimmicks, including backgammon games, dinner theater, wrestling nights, and even magic shows. Nothing worked. As it struggled, Steve met a man who would become his closest friend, Ralph Cologne, known to Steve by the nickname Ray. I've found that pronounced both colon and cologne for the record, and I'm choosing cologne just so I don't have to repeatedly say colon. Anyway, he met Steve in 1975, and aside from similar builds, the two seemed polar opposites in most superficial ways. Ray seemed super relaxed, chill, but like Steve, he had a kind of a scary intensity simmering beneath the surface. Per Deadly Dance, quote, His physicality included an underlying menace that never seemed to dissipate entirely, even when he was laughing. Ray seemed like the type of man who would live up to the motto, no better friend, no worse enemy, end quote. Ray had grown up Catholic, serving as an altar boy at church, but his early years were a bit turbulent. He dropped out of school before graduating and later earned his GED while serving about two years in the U.S. Air Force, where he got in trouble for stealing a Playboy magazine that had been sent to someone else. The retribution he endured, being charged with male tampering, soured him on the Air Force, so he requested a general discharge. Things didn't improve on his return to civilian life. He faced petty theft and forgery-type charges and got married and divorced twice before marrying his third wife, Barbara, in 1975. It was around then that Ray stopped by Destiny 2 for a drink. He and Banerjee got to talking and Ray mentioned his background as a musician. Steve asked for advice about the crappy house band playing in his club and took Ray's advice to fire them. That's how their relationship really evolved, beginning with them meeting at Destiny 2 and continuing after it transitioned into Chippendales. The Ray-Steve friendship is one of the things the Hulu series Welcome to Chippendales took liberties with. They portrayed Ray as a handyman hired by Steve's eventual wife, who pledged his fealty to Steve in a pretty cringy ring-kissing scene. It's probably the scene I dislike the most, but I get that the show writers were trying to use it as a way to illustrate Steve's growing ambitions and ego, which would soon turn into criminal plots that he would rope Ray into committing for him. Still, from what I've read about Ray, he was a bit harder core than his TV counterpart, and while he did bend to Steve's increasingly crazy demands, he would have had enough self-respect to not kiss the dude's ring. Ray really is an interesting character. This was a guy who served in the military and then tried to join a police force while also working as the muscle for a mobster who was completely separate from Steve. So his criminal life wasn't caused by Steve. In fact, Steve hit Ray up for his nefarious schemes because he knew that Ray was a criminal already. The first such scheme was arson. This was after Destiny 2 had become Chippendales and was one of LA's hottest clubs. Steve didn't like that other clubs also had patrons, so he asked Ray to arrange for them to be burned down. Ray tried twice on two different clubs, but both times the damage wasn't severe enough to close the places down. 
as YouTuber Miss Mojo says. The people Cologne sent to the establishments failed in the arson attempts. This pissed Steve off because he had fronted Ray some money for the jobs and he suspected Ray was slacking as a way to take the money and run. Those failed arsons would eventually serve as leverage for Steve to insist that Ray do far more sinister deeds. From the start, Steve Banerjee and Nick DeNoia butted heads. They fought about creative control, but the more common theme was money. As the club grew in popularity, Nick felt he deserved a bigger cut of the profits, which led to countless arguments. Steve would accuse Nick of trying to rob him, and he'd routinely pull rank in a very childlike way. It was like this. I'm the butt of you. That's my kid when he was a toddler, saying, I'm the boss of you. Nick was not having this. He was a talented, creative guy who needed more ego massaging than micromanaging. Plus, he was smart enough to know that it was his choreography that elevated the strip club into the sensation it had become. And to be clear, he was right on that front. When Paul Snyder had pitched the male strippers idea, he had envisioned it as being the same as a (coughs) gentleman's club, with the genders simply reversed. Dudes would stand on stage and just straight up strip. Snyder had even emceed the show briefly. Bruce Nan, an attorney who co-founded Chippendales with Banerjee and served as its lawyer from 1976 to 1994, said, Paul was a horrible emcee. He didn't have any interaction with the audience, jokes or whatever. The whole show stunk. Denoya switched things up. He believed that women weren't stimulated the same way as men. They wanted a story. They needed a character, not just a body. So that's what Nick's dances delivered. To keep women interested, too, the stories needed to regularly change. If you think about romance novels that are popular with women, this makes sense. How many fans of the genre keep reading the same book over and over again? To keep fans coming back, Nick constantly churned out new routines. Nick did, as the Hulu series depicts, get Steve to agree to give him control of any touring productions, and it really was an agreement scrawled out on a napkin. Nick DeNoia and Steve Banerjee made what others call the napkin deal. The partners split the rights for the NYC club, but DeNoia would have all touring rights in perpetuity. Banerjee signed the napkin contract, unknowingly signing away what would be the most lucrative part of the Chippendales brand forever. Nick gained international fame that infuriated Steve, especially when the media started nicknaming him Mr. Chippendales. Steve figured that he had started the club and picked the name and courted Nick, etc. He thought he deserved more credit. He made crazy money off the place, but for some people, money and success aren't enough. Their egos demand more. They want public adoration. They want power. When someone else is successful, they interpret that as somehow stealing from their own success, as though life is a zero-sum game with only one winner possible. It's, of course, rooted in insecurity, which is sad and pathetic. 
This is Hodari Sababu, a former Chippendales dancer. He's the closest real-life person aligned with the character of Otis from the TV series. They felt that part of solving problems was to make people disappear. If you've seen the show and are curious, Sababu, like Otis, was an incredibly popular black dancer who was omitted from the wildly successful Chippendales calendar because Steve thought his skin color would hurt sales. Anyway, Steve first ordered competitive clubs to be burned down, and later, as Nick got more and more praise for his work elevating the club's performances, Steve's thoughts turned to murder. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Don't murder people. It's a really simple edict to live by. It's going to be an incredibly rare situation in which 20 years down the road, you're sitting there thinking, I should have murdered that guy. So, you know, don't. Anyway, on the personal front, Steve seemed to have everything. He met a woman named Irene who gave birth to their first child, a daughter named Lindsay, in 1985. Irene wasn't as involved in the club as the Hulu show depicts. She wasn't its accountant, for example, but she had worked briefly there as a bartender, which is how she and Steve first met. They lived a posh lifestyle most of us can only dream about, though Steve, of course, wasn't content to live within his generous means. He wanted more and more. He dreamed of becoming on par not just with Hugh Hefner, but with Walt freaking Disney. And on top of that, he had instituted racist policies at his club that led to multiple big-dollar lawsuits. Despite being an Indian immigrant, he ordered his bouncers to turn away brown and black people because he felt that allowing them entrance would make white patrons less likely to want to visit. Energy was obsessed with having a classy club, which essentially meant white. In fact, Chippendales was a largely white island in the midst of one of the country's most diverse cities. He also faced lawsuits alleging sex discrimination because initially the club was only open to women, period. Things were crazy enough at that point, as these dancers explained to Joan Rivers on her talk show in the 1980s. I mean, every night's usually something new, so you usually forget. But I've had uh, 80-year-old women pull me into the audience. Uh, I had a lady bite my stomach and would not let go. Bite your stomach. I had a big woman jump on me and wrap her legs around me and not let go. I was like, trying to shake her. It's not an easy job, It's not an easy job. Yeah, Rick does a bed number and and a lady jumped out of the audience on the bed with him. Ain't no sunshine anymore. It's supposed to be a blues song where my girl's gone. I hear this girl, oh, take her place. Soon the club began opening its doors to men after the performances as well. So basically, the women would come get all riled up and men were happy to pay a cover charge to get to mingle with riled-up women. This led to crazy sexcapades in just about every corner of the building, and it drew such huge crowds that Chippendales was routinely cited by fire officials for permitting more people inside than was legally allowed. Rather than just fixing these problems, Steve either ignored or fought them, costing him millions. Still, the traveling performance did well and landed on TV so often that most outsiders had no clue who Steve even was, much less how much financial turmoil he was in. It's possible Irene didn't even know that part. Steve decided the only way to fix this was to arrange for Nick DeNoia to be murdered. 
he reached out to Ray, who tapped a heroin-addicted criminal who had assisted in one of the earlier arson attempts. Steve had never met the guy, a 32-year-old man named Gilberto Rivera Lopez, who often went by Louie. So he was removed enough that Ray figured if he were caught, authorities would have a tough time linking him back to Banerjee. For his part, Lopez didn't know on whose behalf Ray was hiring him. He thought it was a mobster because Ray routinely did work for one. Ray was happy to let Lopez believe that because it made it far less likely that Lopez would snitch at all if he thought the hit was on behalf of the mob. Together, Ray and Lopez traveled from California to New York, placed a phone call pretending to be a dancer wanting an audition to ensure Nick would be in his office. After which, Lopez went to the office and asked where Nick was. Ray wasn't with him, but waited outside in a getaway car. Lopez later described the fatal encounter to him. He said he knocked on Nick's door and was told to come in. Lopez asked if he was Nick Denoya. Nick said that he was. Lopez pulled out a handgun from his pocket and said, then you're a dead man. For a split second, Nick smirked, apparently thinking it was a joke, but then a flash of panic hit his face. Lopez fired one shot and ran to the stairwell. On his way, he thought he heard someone chasing him down the stairs, so he turned around and waited with his gun aimed. No one appeared, though, and he kept running until he reached Ray's car. While the hit was quote-unquote successful, what happened next makes clear what an amateur the pair of killers was. Ray got lost trying to flee the scene. The two actually drove by the building again after getting turned around, by which point police had arrived and were starting to shut down traffic. Ray and Lopez narrowly missed getting stuck within a barricade. New York City police are trying to determine the motive in the murder of an award-winning television producer and choreographer. Investigators say there was no sign of a robbery or struggle. Straight away, some suspected Banerjee was involved, but they couldn't pinpoint the shooter, so there was no way to prove their suspicions. Steve had expected that after Nick's death, the traveling show rights would default to him, but no, they went to Denoy's family, his next of kin. For more than a year, one of Nick's brothers, Val, tried to run the show mostly because he was certain Steve had killed his brother, but the criminal case dragged on and on, and eventually he lost hope that it would ever be solved, So the estate sold the rights to the touring show and all other assets to Steve for $1.3 million. Steve had gotten away with murder, but it still wasn't enough. Five years passed with no real progress made in the investigation into Nick DeNoya's death. Steve and Irene were still married, and while a cloud of suspicion always hung over him, Steve was certain he would never be tied to the killing. He and Irene, in fact, had their second child, a boy named Christian, in 1990. Steve felt safe. He didn't even know the identity of the gunman, who in turn didn't know the hit he'd carried out was on Banerjee's behalf. Plus, it turned out that Lopez wasn't a legal U.S. resident, He had immigrated illegally from Mexico and, after being caught in some other crime, had been deported. But Steve wasn't satisfied. After the success of Chippendales, of course similar enterprises cropped up. 
One gaining momentum was a traveling show called Adonis. Some of Chippendale's dancers had jumped ship to join the competition. Though Ray apparently tried to talk sense into Steve by saying, hey, competition is inevitable. The two both threatened each other with their supposed mob connections. Ray didn't know if Steve was bluffing about his, but he had seen the man blow up enough that he took his death threat seriously. Ray half-heartedly traveled to Canada with his brother once to target a few Adonis bigwigs, but he said he couldn't find the troop. One of the lamest excuses I can imagine, given all the promotion that would have been happening. And he basically used the money Steve had fronted for the hit to take a vacation with his brother-in-law, whom he would always maintain was clueless about the real intent of the trip. For the record, the brother-in-law was more involved than Ray would ever admit. Billy Barnes would eventually plead guilty to being an accessory and receive a 51-month prison sentence plus three years of probation. Anyway, after coming home with no deaths to report, Ray said Steve blew up at him and insisted he keep at it until the job was done. The main targets were Adonis choreographer Mike Fullington, creative director Reed Scott, and dancer Steve White, who had quit Chippendales about six months prior to join Adonis. Any one kill would be rewarded with $25,000, Steve promised, while getting all three would translate to $100,000. Ray reached out to an acquaintance he had tried to hire earlier from one of the arsons, but who hadn't been available at that time. This time, Errol Lynn Bressler, nicknamed Strawberry because of his reddish-blonde hair, was available and said he was game. Bressler was a drifter who worked odd jobs on oil rigs in Texas for a spell, another time as a mechanic at a truck stop in the desert near Las Vegas. But after Strawberry agreed to the hit, he had second thoughts. He reached out to FBI agents and agreed to get Ray talking about the murder plot on tape. Strawberry later said, I didn't want to go back to L.A. That's too close to Ray. So I figured my only salvation is the FBI. With an incriminating conversation on tape, the FBI threatened Ray with life behind bars unless he led them to the person who'd hired him. It took some time, but Ray eventually agreed. He wasn't in great health. He had a kidney condition that had thwarted his police force hopes, and he sensed that Steve was never going to stop. The man seemed out of control. So Ray reached out to Steve with a well-crafted story. He said, accurately, that the man he had hired to do the job while Adonis toured in England had flipped on him, and Ray was wanted by the FBI and needed to flee the country. He promised repeatedly that he would never cooperate, but he needed money to escape, which Steve provided. Steve, rightly paranoid that Ray might turn on him, was incredibly careful about what he said whenever the two talked. At one meeting, Steve dragged Ray into a restroom to pat him down for a wire, nearly discovering one that had been sewn into Ray's underwear, And then, even after he found no wire, Steve still refused to speak a word out loud, instead writing messages on pieces of paper, which he quickly ripped up and flushed down the toilet. Steve was so cautious that FBI officials worried he'd never slip up and say anything incriminating, so they shipped Ray to Switzerland to convince Steve that he had indeed fled the country. 
It was in a Zurich hotel room that Ray finally got Steve to talk about the failed assassination plans. Ray had assured him time and again that they were like brothers and he'd never turn on him, but... The room was bugged, with FBI agents listening in next door, and eventually, Banerjee gave them what they needed to issue an arrest in September 1993. That was Miss Mojo again. The bust was dramatic, though not as much as the Hulu series suggests. It didn't just happen straight away. Steve left the hotel room and was back in L.A. when agents finally arrested him. It must have felt out of the blue for him, and at first he might not have fully grasped that Ray had indeed turned on him, but as the criminal proceedings unfolded, that part became crystal clear. As often happens with cases like these, it moved slowly through the court system, during which time Steve was out on bail, moving through life like he would beat the rap. Eventually, though, once prosecutors laid out their evidence, he knew he was screwed. And so he thought of something clever. This is grunge again. He pleaded guilty and then arranged to have all of his assets, including his stake in Chippendales, transferred to his wife, Irene. But that wasn't the soundest of plans. Irene moved to divorce Banerjee and sell Chippendales, which would have left him with nothing. And with the FBI arguing against bail, he would have had no chance to escape back to India, where he thought he would be able to marry again and start over under a new name. On the morning of his sentencing, a guard found Steve dead in his cell. He had taken a sheet, tied it around his neck, and hung the other end to a hook on the wall. Then he leaned forward. Because Steve had killed himself before officially being sentenced, the assets the judge would have confiscated on behalf of the government were no longer in Steve's control. His will left everything to others, most notably his, by then, ex-wife, Irene. While the Hulu show depicts this as a way to protect Irene and ensure his kids were cared for, I see this as another movement to exert control, to maintain his power. By doing what he did, Steve ensured that Denoya's family could recoup nothing for the loss of Nick, nor could the government. The Adonis targets who had been traumatized by learning how close they had come to death a realization that triggered panic attacks and derailed their careers, also got nothing. Ray spent two years in prison. Louis Lopez eventually faced a jury for his role in the murder, being found guilty of the criminal use of a firearm in the first degree and the second degree murder of Nick DeNoya. Louis was sentenced on September 10, 1996, to between 25 years and life. Irene raised her children in comfort, but died in 2001 of breast cancer. Son Christian is now an exotic dancer performing routines that would have fit well on the Chippendale stage, though he performs for an unrelated outfit called Strippendales. Ironically, one of the competitors that Steve likely would have tried to destroy. Denoya's family was forever changed. Nick had been an integral part of the clan, and his absence, plus the anger stirred every time they reflected on his death, made it tough to reminisce about the joy he had brought in life. A niece he had particularly doted on has pursued a career in television, though, in part to ensure her uncle's legacy lives on.
To research this story, I read the book The Deadly Dance, The Chippendales Murders by K. Scott McDonald and Patrick Montes de Oca. I could not find a pronouncer for that. I did my best. I also read contemporary and retrospective news stories about the various cases and watched TV documentaries about Denoy's death, as well as talk shows I found that had featured Chippendales and its dancers back in the 1980s. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>